I think it's important to understand that at that time in America, the late 19th century, polygamy was kind of the hot button social issue of the day. This was kind of like current issues that get people really charged one side or the other. That's how polygamy was in late 19th century America. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 33 of Saints Volume 2, Until the Storm Blows Past. And we are so excited to welcome Brian Warburton with us today. He's an archivist with the Church History Library. So welcome, Brian. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. I work, as, a, as you said, a, as our archivist at the Church History Library. Basically, what I'm in charge of is the collection care of the physical archives collection. So me and my team are responsible to make sure that everything is stored and housed appropriately, that it's accounted for, that it's being taken care of and handled appropriately, all of those types of things. And Brian, you're a bona fide historian, isn't that right? You have a master's degree in history? I do have a master's degree from the University of Nebraska, and yeah, and it ties into some of what we'll be talking about today, so that's great. We're thrilled to have you with us because of your expertise in this area. You're going to be able to help us understand more about what was happening and some of the things behind the scenes. Before we get to that, though, let's talk for just a moment about an amazing story about Hare Timiana, and I apologize to all Maori people who are listening. I probably messed that up. Is that close? It sounds close. We'll I don't go know with either. that. I, I think it is Hare, but other than that, yeah. Okay, so Hare is this matakite, a, a spiritual leader who has visions, and he has this vision. We start out the chapter. Uh, Peter tells him that someone's going to come to teach him the full gospel, and that is quickly fulfilled when William McDonnell who in and of himself has this amazing story where he's grown up, he's learned the Maori language, he's joined the church, and then is called on this mission. Tell us what happens when William McDonald goes to visit Hare. Yeah, so I mean, this, is, this is an amazing story. William, he wants to get to the village quicker. He doesn't want to go the long way and take the road like his companions are doing. So he actually climbs up this cliff and Hare is standing there and sees this guy down there climbing up the cliff and wonders, what is this guy doing and why is he not taking the road? And finally he gets to the top and he's out of breath and tired and Hare kind of grabs him and asks him, you know, who are you? Tell me. And he says, I'll tell you some more about the gospel and why I'm here when my companion gets here. And Hare just kind of grabs him and says, no, tell me right now. I love that. I love how excited he is to learn because he's been prepared by this dream. Let's listen to another quote here from the book that talks about a blessing that is given and the faith of the Maori people. That night, William was unable to sleep. He had faith that Mary could be healed, but what if it was not God's will? How would it affect the faith of Hare and other Maori if she died? Just after sunrise, William started for Hare's house. In the distance, he saw a woman from the village coming toward him. When she reached him, she lifted him off the ground in an embrace. She then took him by the hand and pulled him to Hare's house. How is the girl? William asked. Plenty good, the woman said. When William entered the house, he found Mary sitting up in bed and looking around the room. He shook hands with her and asked her mother to get her some strawberries to eat. I just love that story. It 
highlights the incredible faith that these Maori people have. And in fact, I loved this too from the book, that even just a year before the missionaries came, these spiritual leaders of the Maori, the people were asking them, what church should we join? What church should we join? And they said that the church they should join has not yet arrived. And it just reminded me, so the listeners probably remember, I served a mission in Kirtland, and it reminded me of Newell K. Whitney and his wife when they were praying to know which church to join. And they had their own vision, basically, that the word of the Lord was coming to Kirtland, and they would just wait. And so I loved this experience that then here come the missionaries and They just want them to tell them about the gospel. Don't leave until you tell us about the gospel. It's incredible. Another piece of the story that I found particularly compelling is William is a faithful missionary, and he's given Mary this blessing. But perhaps some of our listeners, like me, will have had the experience where you've given a blessing and you've said words, and you then kind of question yourself, did that come from me or did that come from the Lord? Because if this person doesn't get better— I know the words that I said, and so does the family. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I thought the same thing as I read that because I've had those experiences as well where you've said things and then afterward think, oh, was that really inspired? Or was that just me wishfully thinking or whatever the case may be? And certainly William has that experience that night. He can't sleep. He's tossing and turning and wondering, what have I done? Did I say what I should have said? And so the fact that that morning he gets pulled into the house and sees her sitting up, that must have been such a faith-building experience for him and a little bit relieving as well, knowing that that really came from the Lord and not from himself. In future episodes, we're going to learn lots more about the incredible faith of the Maori people, including the fact that in this chapter, we learn baptisms happen within a few days and a branch is organized within two months. But for now, let's move on to another woman who also showed incredible faith, and that's a woman by the name of Anna Woodso. Yeah, Anna Witso in, in Norway, incredible faith, wants to gather to Zion as the saints were commanded at the time, wants to come to Utah and does everything that she possibly can to be able to do so. She's got a dressmaking business there in Norway that's doing well. She recognizes that if she leaves that, that she doesn't know how well she'll be able to make a living when she comes to Utah. She doesn't know how she'll make things work, but she's willing to just drop it all and just go. I think her story is it's a reminder of a lot of the saints that were coming to Zion and that wanted to come to Zion of everything that they were leaving. And in the book it mentioned her husband had died, and so his grave was there in addition to it being her homeland, and she would lose her husband's pension if she came to the United States. And so it's just, these are such high stakes and so many considerations to think of, but she knew that this was what she was going to do and wanted to do. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And even as you're saying that, it just makes me think, you know, this sounds a lot like people today even. These are a lot of the same kind of issues that saints today face, having to make decisions about the gospel, things like a pension or, you know, things like just having to deal with all these little things that are going on in life, a husband passing away and maybe feeling prompted to move or those types of things. I think those are things that people even today struggle with. And so I think that's a a really good point. So Anna, she does say something that I think can be a lesson for everybody and something to strive towards. She says, if we cannot leave everything, even our life, if required, we are no disciples. Yeah, just absolutely powerful. It just shows the faith that she had, that she's willing to drop everything and says that everything in this life doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel. (music) 
Well, speaking of great acts of faith, another woman that we meet in this chapter is Ida Hunt Udall. She is a plural wife. She's afraid she's going to have to testify against her husband. So she chooses to go on the underground. She goes into hiding. Can you give us a little background about the people that are living in this situation and what's it like? Yeah, absolutely. So she and her family are living in St. John's, Arizona. Um, It's in eastern Arizona, eastern central Arizona. And St. John's has for a couple of years at this point been kind of a hotbed of contention between members of the church uh, living in the area and non-members. The town was kind of established about 10 years before in the early 1870s by a man named Solomon Barth, who went by Saul Barth. And he actually, ironically, immigrated with a Mormon company of immigrants from Europe to the Salt Lake Valley with an uncle who had joined the church, but he never joined. He kind of drifted around the Western United States for years. And funny enough, he wins through a game of cards the area of St. John's. He sits down with some Hispanic sheep herders. They have this big card game going, and he wins the whole area, a whole bunch of sheep, cash, all kinds of stuff, and establishes this town. Originally, it was San Juan, and then it gets anglicized pretty soon to St. John's. And This, this is crazy. This really, it sounds like a Western movie. Yeah, absolutely. He, he wins the town through... A gambling game. Yes, he does. Yep. Got some sheep and some cash. <laughs> yeah, got cash, sheep, land, water rights to the little Colorado River that runs through there. And so he establishes this town uh, with his brothers, and he marries a Hispanic woman, and quite a few Hispanic sheep herders from uh, New Mexico kind of come over and start utilizing the land there in Arizona. And in 1879, There were Mormon immigrants. Brigham Young had commanded that a mission be sent down to Arizona to establish uh, Mormon colonies there. So in 1876, they established uh, several town sites along the Little Colorado River. And in 1879, Wilford Woodruff travels the area and he sees St. John's and says that he would like for the church to try to buy up land there and try to settle in the St. John's area. And their first approach, Jesse and Smith tries going to Saul Barth to talk to him about it, and he's refused. A little while later, a man named Ammon Tinney decides to try again. He likes the area and decides to go try again. He is successful, and a lot of of what happens here leads to a lot of controversy in, in the near future. He purchases what he thinks is a large area of land and all of the water rights from Saul Barth. It turns out Saul Barth wasn't completely truthful with him in what he actually sold him. And this causes a lot of problems in the future. But with that, they start establishing uh, a town right outside of the original St. John's and they start setting this up. And then a lot of controversy starts happening between the two groups. So these two groups, who are they again? We have the Latter-day Saint pioneers or early settlers. Who's the other group? What are they made up of? So for the most part, most of the people that were originally living in St. John's are Hispanic sheep herders that came from New Mexico. Saul Barth is originally from Prussia and he's Jewish. So he and his brothers are Jewish. And then they have a few Anglo-Americans have started to kind of move into the area. So you have a few of them as well. But for the most part, it's mostly Hispanic people who were living in the area at the time. So is it religious differences that are causing most of the contention? 
That's definitely part of it. There's definitely, you know, you've got a very strong devout Catholics living in the area. And then you've got some Jewish people as well. And then you've got Protestant Christians from the United States that have moved in. And then, of course, you've got this larger group of Latter-day Saints that are coming in. And the Latter-day Saints are trying to come in with as many people as possible. It's interesting because as you study uh, this area, a lot of the people, the original residents of St. John's are very worried that the Latter-day Saints are going to come in and try to kick them out and try to take over the whole town. And they weren't totally wrong because that's actually, Wilford Woodruff is actually saying, bring in as many Latter-day Saint families as you possibly can so that hopefully these other people will just decide to, to move away. And so there is this butting of heads and there's a lot of contention that goes on between the, the groups. What is this thing that's called the ring? Yeah. Again, this sounds like a little bit of a movie plot, but <laughs> it's it's right here in the book. But who's the ring and what are they yeah. trying to do? Great question. Well, Saul Barth, he's kind of the leader of the ring. Really what it was, it's, it's this small group of powerful, influential men who are here in St. John's. And they kind of start working together to control political, social, economic interests in the town. They want to control everything. And in order to do so, they work together. So there's evidence that they stuffed ballots, they intimidated voters, they didn't allow businesses to take root that probably should have been able to. Um, they, they did a lot of things to try to control the town. And they felt that the Latter-day Saint settlers in the area were one of the biggest threats to their power. And so therefore, they started targeting Latter-day Saints and finding ways to try to persecute. What they're doing is they're hoping that if they do this, that the Latter-day Saints will either leave or there is some evidence that they also thought, well, maybe we can escalate this into a big fight and then we can draw them out into an actual violent conflict and then that will you know, make them look bad and we can defeat them and, and force them out of the area. Well, there was something in the book that I found quite terrifying that there was an article published in the newspaper and in, there was a quote that said, how did Missouri and Illinois get rid of the Mormons by the use of shotgun and rope? Yes, that was in the Apache Chief. So this ring, they started a newspaper. The first uh, publisher of the newspaper was a man named John McCarter, and he started the Apache Chief is what it was called. And he published that editorial saying, if we have to do it violently like they did in, in Illinois and Missouri, we should do the same thing here to get rid of them. Wow, that's terrifying. With these articles and these difficulties that the saints are facing, What's going on for Ida Udall Hunt and the other saints in the area? Yeah, there's definitely fear and concern. So Ida marries David Udall in 1882. They travel to the St. George Temple where they're sealed. And it's interesting because this was called the Honeymoon Trail, following the trail to St. George to be sealed and then back to eastern Arizona because there were so many uh, couples who would go do this. But it wasn't just her and David who went. It was her and David and his first wife, Luella, and her children who also went on this trip. So all of them are together on this honeymoon trail. They go to St. George. They're sealed. On the way back, David is concerned about what will happen in St. John's if he comes back home and now he's got two wives. Right. So on the way back, they actually decide, let's stop in Snowflake. We're going to have Ida stay with her parents in Snowflake for a little bit. We're going to go to St. John's and we're going to kind of try to feel things out, get a better feel for it. And so they continue on to St. John's. 
And it's while this is happening, while Ida's still in Snowflake and the rest of the family moves to St. John's, that there's a very violent shootout that happens in St. John's. It's on San Juan's Day, which was in June 1882. A Mormon family by the, the name of Greer had several members of their family and, and other hired hands came into town to see the celebrations that were going on. There was a rodeo and different things going on. And when they come into town, they're asked to leave their weapons. They don't want to because they're afraid they're going to get ambushed. And so they keep going into town with their weapons. And then pretty soon there's this big shootout that takes place. And actually Ammon Tinney's father is killed in the shootout. He's trying to actually break it up, trying to get everybody to stop. And he gets shot in the head and passes away. Ida hears about this and everybody in Snowflake hears about this and they're very concerned. And she actually writes to David asking first, are they okay? And also saying, you know, what needs to be done? And it kind of shows some faith that if we keep living the gospel, the Lord's going to work things out and we're going to be kept safe. She even says, those who suffer persecution for the gospel's sake have a peace and contentment which they could scarcely expect. We cannot expect to glide along this church without trials. And I just thought that was incredible because she's having these horrific things happening to her. And yet she says there's a peace and contentment that comes along with that suffering. And I just find that so hard to reconcile. I think that's incredible faith that she has during these traumatic things. Yeah. A few weeks after the shootout, she actually then does move into St. John's. David came and got her in Snowflake and they traveled back to St. John's and she's feeling very nervous and worried, recognizing that they're moving into a house and they're surrounded by people who are not Latter-day Saints, whereas she'd grown up for the last several years in Snowflake, where most everybody was a Latter-day Saint. So she's recognizing she's kind of jumping into the fire. And, and when she says the quote that you just read for us, this is when the polygamy persecutions start. And that, that happens a couple of years later. And, and then that's kind of the next phase of this contention that happens in St. John's is this very intense prosecution of polygamy. Tell us a little bit about what that's like for these members who are living there. The marshals are coming to town. What are they doing and what do the people on the underground try to do to sort of hide out from the the raid? The summer of 1884, yeah, so territorial and federal marshals decide to start raiding. And St. John's is kind of this area where they really choose to go after. And I think a lot of it has to do with this ring that we talked about. Saul Barth and those members of the ring, they want to pursue this as much as possible to try to weaken the Latter-day Saint presence there. And so they're actively participating and trying to point out families, you should go get these people and these people. And we'll see later, they also participate in the trials as well. And so, yeah, they just start going and grabbing people, basically arresting them. All of them were very cooperative. They were arrested and immediately were released on bail with the condition that they come to Prescott, which was the territorial capital at the time, for trial several months later. And all of them post bail and all of them dutifully followed um, their orders to arrive in November for their trials. So, Brian, tell us about the people who were not necessarily affected by the raid and they're just left behind. Yeah. So... Ida's one of those. Um, her husband, David, he is charged with perjury. It's for a, a land dispute where this ring claims that he lied in court about a land dispute. And so they have him and a few others charged with perjury for that. Really what they're trying to do is hold him and try to get evidence of, of polygamy so they can charge him with that because they suspect that Ida is a plural wife. And at this point, Ammon Tinney, who we've uh, already talked about a little bit before, he is 
uh, her brother-in-law. He's married to David Udall's sister. And during the raid, he comes and actually kind of warns her and says, if you don't want David to get arrested, you should probably go into hiding. And so she actually does decide to do that. And this is something that Latter-day Saints were encouraged to do um, by leaders of the church at the time. They were encouraged to kind of fight against the polygamy prosecutions by going into hiding, by refusing to testify in court, doing these things that were nonviolent, but things that they could do to kind of fight back against it in any way they could to prevent people from being convicted on, on charges of polygamy. And even there's an example in the book about John Taylor, who's in court testifying when he's asked to find some marriage records. And we have a clip from the book that explains the situation. If you wanted to see it, one lawyer asked him, is there any means of ascertaining where it is? I could find out by inquiry, President Taylor said. Will you be good enough to do so, asked the lawyer. Well, said the prophet Riley, I am not good enough to do so. The courtroom then erupted in laughter. I think that's pretty funny that President Taylor is trying to make light a little bit of this situation where he's being asked to implicate everybody that the church may have records of their plural marriages, and he gets a good joke off in court. Yeah, it's a funny little situation there, and it does show that the highest levels, you know, the prophet is willing to follow through with what he's asking the rest of the members to do, and that's to find any way possible to fight back against this prosecution of polygamy by not testifying, by not giving information, by going into hiding, these types of things. He's willing to do the same as what he's asking the rest of them to do. Another person in this chapter is Rudger Clausen. His wife, Lydia, is trying her best to avoid testifying, and she gets thrown in jail. Was that typical? Was that a tactic that the federal officials were using against people in this situation? Federal officials at this time were trying to do anything to get people to testify. So it wasn't necessarily something that happened frequently, but it did happen. They would try to kind of force their hand a little bit and try to get them to testify in court because like we said, many of them were refusing to do so or, you know, that type of thing. And so they thought, well, maybe if we arrest them and throw them into prison, maybe that will get them to testify um, anything they could. I think it's important to understand that at that time in America, the late 19th century, polygamy was kind of the hot button social issue of the day. This was kind of like current issues that get people really charged one side or the other. That's how polygamy was in late 19th century America. With Lydia in her situation, so she's in jail. It doesn't sound like she's necessarily looking for an out. Like she feels like she's standing up for what she believes, but she's pregnant and her husband, so Rudger, he is just begging her to testify against him. And very reluctantly, she does. She whispers that she is his wife and that she's married to him. So tell us more about what happens with that situation. That's exactly right. She's pregnant. She's in the prison. They don't really have separate quarters for women and men in prisons back then. So she's surrounded by some pretty rough guys in prison. She's pregnant. All these things are going on. And yeah, Rudger feels terrible. You know, he doesn't want his pregnant wife being stuck in this prison in this situation. And so, yeah, like you say, he goes and he begs her. He says, just testify against me, knowing that it would be better, at least for him, he would feel better if he were the one in prison rather than her. And so 
She doesn't want to, but finally agrees. And yeah, on the stand, just kind of whispers that, yeah, she's married to him. And then, then, of course, you know, he's he's then convicted. Yeah, it says in the book that in 20 minutes, wow. basically as soon as she says it, case is over, Rudger's convicted. Yeah. Listen to this quote here from the book about what his feeling is at this time. I very much regret that the laws of my country should come in contact with the laws of God, Rudger said. But whenever they do, I shall invariably choose the latter. The judge sat back in his chair. He had been prepared to be lenient with Rudger, but the young man's defiance had changed his mind. With a solemn look, he sentenced Rudger to four years in prison and fined him $500 for polygamy and $300 for unlawful cohabitation. It seems Rudger is committed. He's going to follow through with what the law is. He's very disappointed that his beliefs have forced him into this situation, but he's not going to back down. Yeah, and I think the sentiments that we just heard from Rudger are pretty indicative of the way that most Latter-day Saints who were practicing polygamy at the time felt. They deeply felt that this was a commandment from God. They were being asked by God and by their church leaders to do this, and they were fully committed they knew it was against the law. They knew that they risked a lot as far as being convicted, going to jail, possibly losing property, uh, not having the ability to vote, many of these things that are essential rights in the United States. And all of them, or nearly all at least, were willing to, to do whatever they had to to continue practicing what they felt um, they were being commanded to do. Brian, can you tell us more about these trials that happened in Prescott, was it orderly? Was it fair? Like, what was going on? Sure. So the trials take place, it's the last week of November, spills over into the beginning of December. And each of these men is, is charged. There's a jury there. And to the witness stand, almost inevitably, are members of the St. John's Ring. Saul Barth being one of them and several of his other cronies are all there on the witness stand. And they're all telling, in, in a lot of ways, fairly salacious stories. And then the men are just being convicted, boom, 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 over and over. Each day there's a new trial, and each day another man is convicted and, and remanded to jail. And when this is happening, actually, Miles Romney is one of the charged men, and he sees this happening and realizes he doesn't stand a chance, that he's going to be convicted no matter what. And so he decides that he is going to sneak away in the night and he heads down to Mexico and starts scouting out areas where he and others who are practicing polygamy can settle in Mexico where hopefully they won't be prosecuted uh, like they have been in the United States. That story of Miles Romney will come back in a presidential campaign. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So this is history that matters and history that continues to affect us Absolutely. as a people and as families even today. We're going to learn more about the Mexican colonies in future episodes, both of the colonies in Mexico and in Canada, in the Cardston area, where many people fleeing persecution and prosecution went to try to continue to live with their families, their plural families, in an open way. So when John Taylor gets back to Salt Lake City, he goes to the tabernacle, and he gives a very public speech, which he must have been worried about getting arrested. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what he told the saints and then what he did after? Yeah. So again, he's preaching confidence, just like he did in Arizona. He's telling them, pull up the collar of your coat and button yourself up and keep the cold out until the storm blows past. He's basically saying, just hunker down. Things will get better. Don't worry too much. But like you said, I think in the back of his mind, he's probably feeling a little nervous himself. They're in this public setting. Federal officials are all over in Salt Lake at the time looking for him and other church leaders. And as soon as he gives that speech, uh, he mentions in, in the chapter, he jumps into a carriage and drives off into the night. And basically, he goes into the underground himself at this point to avoid being arrested for polygamy. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise with us today. We're glad to have you. Thank you. And we just want to encourage our listeners, if you're accessing Saints digitally, you can actually explore the footnotes and learn a lot more information about the people and events that we've been talking about today. And as always, we welcome your feedback. Email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org and be sure to visit our website, saints.churchofjesuschrist.org to access, again, additional topics, videos, and read along with the chapters. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening and join us again next time.